Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Well, hello there. Welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 163. Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security means strength. Our our friend, the voiceover announcer, Don Morgan, introduces us as broadcasting from the historic Zone Radio studios. But we're not just saying that. This building has, has housed a radio station for, what, 80-some years? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, went on the, the frequency went on the air in the late 20s, but it was broadcasting from this site by the early 30s. Wow. Yeah. How about that? And... Uh, Neither one of us have been here since the beginning, but close. <laughs> How many years of radio do we have between us? I bet we come close to covering that time period. It, it, yes, because I've been doing it uh, over 25. And so, yeah, we're, we're in the high 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, not, I'm not at 50 yet, but uh, for be 46 years in radio this yeah, summer. I'm, Keep I, in mind, I started as a child. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I think I'm at about 28, 29. I thought you were here when I began here back in the early 90s. Uh, wow, yes. That's 30 years ago. That's th- <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Yes, it is 30 years ago, isn't it? You are correct. Time flies when you're having yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. I've lost track there and, of a couple of years. And you're the math guy. I am. <laughs> Yeah, not math no. that's a problem. It's the passage of time. Anyway, we don't just say this about our, our studio. It is indeed a, a historic operation. We're just trying not to sully all the good things that have come <laughs> out of this building in the last uh, eight or nine decades or so here. This week should be fine. We've got a couple of great guests on the podcast. Later on, actor, singer, director Don Most. Well, you know him from Happy Days, but uh, he's, he's done so much more than that through the years. He's in a, a new movie that has garnered a great critical reception and an award-winning performance by Don uh, in a film called Lost Heart. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but we get things underway by sharing our conversation with a writer and first-time author, Luke Eplin, who takes a look back at the 1948 Cleveland Indians baseball season, championship season, through the eyes of three players and owner Bill Veck. It's a terrific book called Our Team. Here's Luke Eplin on Downtown. I love this book so much. It was a, a tremendous read. What was it that drew you to the story of uh, this 1948 Cleveland Indians team and really the journey that led up to it? Well, it's kind of a long uh, route there. I'm not from Cleveland. I'm from St. Louis. Uh, I had no connection to Cleveland whatsoever. This book takes a look at four different men that are involved in the Cleveland championship, one of whom is named Bill Veck. Um Bill Zeck was the last owner of a team called the St. Louis Browns. This was an old major league team that eventually became the Baltimore Orioles. My grandfather was a huge fan of the St. Louis Browns back during World War II. He used to tell me stories about them, all the things that Bill Zeck did, including at one point bringing a little person to the plate, shooting off fireworks, doing all these crazy promotions. So I really wanted to use him as a character. And I thought I was going to write about the Browns, but then I saw the integration work that Silvec had done with the Indians, uh, the Cleveland Indians, and that really led me to this team. Well, I love the way you framed the story 
through the eyes of uh, these four guys, Bill Veck, Bob Feller, who was a, a national hero for many years, Larry Doby, the second black player in Major League Baseball, and then Satchel Paige, a veteran of the Negro Leagues, who was just hoping to someday get a chance at the majors. And, and what's among the many fascinating things about your book is is the realization that this 1948 World Series, even though the four of them had very different experiences it would in many ways be the peak for them. None of them would ever achieve that level of success again. Yeah, the original title of the book was The First Fine Careless Rapture, which is a phrase that Dolvec used whenever he described that team. It was, in a sense, the top of the mountain for them, the first time that they had, they had all four of these men had achieved that success, and they would chase it for the rest of their lives, never to really... Um, recapture it. And I wanted to sort of focus on these four of them because uh, they're unlikely individuals to come together. You have two white men in Dolbeck and Bob Feller. You have two black men in Larry Doby and Satchel Page. And I thought that they each represented a different facet of the integration experience that was going on at that time. Dolbeck more progressive, Bob Feller more traditional. Larry Doby and Satchel Page were about 17 years apart in age, and so they were sort of different generations of Negro League players at that time. And so these are very unlikely individuals to be coming together with very different personalities and experiences, but really it's through sort of the melding of them that, that got Cleveland to the championship. They all needed each other in the end. Well, the connections between uh, two of these uh, four, Bob Feller and Satchel Page, go back a dozen years before that championship season, and you really set the tone wonderfully with the story of this barnstorming tour that pitted the uh, the veteran Satchel Page against the young fireballer from Van Meter, Iowa. Yeah, so barnstorming was an activity that was done in the age before television um, as a way for major leaguers to sort of make a little bit more money in the off-season. These contests would happen immediately after the season ended, so these were, we're talking about sort of October, maybe into early November. They could do it for about a month before the weather really turned bad, and because these were exhibition games, they could do things that the, you normally could do in the major leagues, and of course, the major leagues are segregated at this time. Um, so really, the only time whenever someone like Bob Feller would be able to face off against players from the Negro Leagues would be during these barnstorming tours when all white teams would compete against all black teams. And Bob Feller was the best white pitcher of his time. He was a sensation. He came out of the cornfields of Iowa and really set the country on fire from very early age. He makes the major leagues at age 17. And and Satchel Page was a sensation in the Negro League. He's the best black pitcher of his time. And so them sort of combining forces was a way to excite crowd interest and, of course, make more money for themselves uh, by swelling the, the, the gate receipts. And so Bob Feller and Satchel Page were seeking each other out in the offseason. We're sort of doing these elaborate barnstorming tours that, that spanned the country as a way to uh, line their own pockets, basically. Well, and you point out uh, that they were a real study in contrast. Feller, very much a man of his times in Depression-era America, even if some of it may have been embellished a bit, but the story of the, the young farm boy who, who learned to pitch on, on the farm and the baseball field that his, his dad carved out of the farmland, uh, that was a message that resonated with a lot of poor people in America that this guy could, as the saying went, pull himself up by his bootstraps and, and experience success to the point where his, his high school graduation, you write, was even aired live on NBC radio. 
from coast to coast, it was indeed. Bob Feller was the quintessential white superstar of his time. He comes from a farm in rural Iowa. His dad senses an ability in him from a very early age, and so he takes sort of a, a part of his farmland clears it out of crops and creates a sort of baseball diamond there that his son then can use as almost like an incubator. It's kind of the original field of dreams. Mm. Through happenstance, Feller makes it onto the Indians roster at age 17, and in his very first major league start ever, he ties the American League record in strikeouts, and then four stars later, he ties the major league record in strikeouts. He is just a sensation. He seems to represent uh, this sort of idea that the American dream is in fact still alive and well, and it's in the youth, the younger sort of people of the time. And so he becomes this this symbol of the American spirit amid the Depression. And I think that you could also look at someone like Satchel Paige, who comes out of the uh, Deep South, where segregation is just a way of life uh, for, for a black individual like him, and he's impoverished and things like that. And he sort of finds his way into the Negro Leagues and turns himself into a sort of almost like one-man show. He would go around to other teams and pitch for them on a game-by-game basis and pocket some of the gate receipts. He was roaming all around the country and into Latin America during a time when travel and other sorts of things like this is greatly restricted for uh, uh, black citizens of the United States. And so he, too, becomes this sort of symbol among black Americans of mobility and defiance and self-determination. So Feller and Page really were resonant among their respective races at that time. And Page, the biggest draw on the barnstorming circuit uh, and seen as an, an entertainer by many, but he always said he was very serious and was very serious about pitching. But uh, even people like Larry Doby in later years would look back at some of Page's antics and, and talk about it as uh, really some of those stereotypes, a step-and-fetch it approach. Yeah, Satchel Page, uh, he he was quite older than, than Larry Doby. He gets his start in the Negro Leagues in the late 20s and really kind of flowers during those early years of the Depression. This is um, a time whenever Jim Crow laws and segregation are, are just rampant across the line, land, and he has to sort of figure out a way to navigate um, them. And he sort of affects a persona that um, he, he walked really slowly to the mound. He had a sort of deadpan demeanor. Um, he told uh, quite uh, humorous and elaborate stories to the press and fans and things like this. And white fans in particular sort of detected traces of the actor Stephen, or the, the character Stephen Fetchett within him. Um, which Page uh, didn't necessarily play down, but once he got on the mound, he was completely all business. He was not on that mound to clown around or to put on uh, any sort of circus act. He was there to win baseball games. Um, so he he had a sort of way about him of navigating those those spaces that sort of put white fans at ease, but also then astonish them by his extraordinary uh, skill and ability on the mound. But as that got, uh, as, as time wore on and sort of World War II came and went, that sort of mode of being fell out of favor. And Larry Doby sort of looked at Satchel Page as someone who was perhaps a little bit undignified or played to stereotypes among white fans, and that is exactly what he did not want to, to do. And so Page and Doby did not, in fact, get along. We're talking with Luke Eplin about his book, uh, Our Team. Uh, Bill Veck had grown up and had been exposed to baseball. His dad 
was involved in minor league baseball as a young man. He uh, bought the Milwaukee Brewers, and uh, even then we saw some of the signs of uh, his flamboyant nature and and his work as an Mm -hmm. entertainer as well, realizing that uh, you needed more than just a baseball game to draw people to the ballpark. Right. Bill Vex sort of cultivated this idea of a baseball game as almost like a theatrical experience. You could have competitive play on the field among the players, but then you could also have sort of diverting sideshows before the games, between innings, and after the games that could go hand-in-hand with that competitive play. So even on a game whenever your team lost or perhaps didn't perform up to expectations, fans could still go home thinking that they were entertained, they got their money's worth, etc. Um, and this was quite a sensation back in the 30s and, and 40s whenever Bill Beck was first uh, starting out. He would do elaborate things like give away livestock or giant <laughs> kegs of nails, big blocks of ice. He would shoot off fireworks. He would marry people at home plate. He would have circus performers on the field. Things that nowadays we might think of as par for the course when going to a stadium. But at that time was not really known. In fact, I do believe that he is kind of the father of the modern stadium experience. Anytime you go to a stadium and you see cap dances or mascot races or fireworks, those are really Bill X fingerprints that you're seeing. Uh, World War II had a big impact on, on the participants, including uh, three of your principals who were involved in the war, Bill Vec suffering a, a serious injury there as well, but also Post-war had a huge impact on baseball. Uh, We had seen, um, I think, more of a push for integration in the post-war years because after after blacks and whites had uh, fought together to save the world against uh, fascism Mm. in Europe, it was was a little hard to segregate, uh, or at least it didn't uh, go down as easily after that. And the push uh, grew for integrating Major League Baseball. But everybody had a different approach to this. I, I thought it was interesting that uh, someone like Larry Doby ha- didn't know much about Major League Baseball because he had grown up following the Negro Leagues, and that was his greatest aspiration in many ways. Yeah, it's interesting. Doby has Doby has a, a story that uh, he grew up in South Carolina and moved to Patterson, New Jersey as a young man. And in his high school years, he went to an integrated high school, and he was uh, quite simply a sensation. He was the captain of a football team that won the state championship. He got a basketball scholarship to one of the powerhouse programs in the nation. And he was a baseball player who was so good that he made the Negro Leagues at the age of 18. Um, He really did kind of feel that that sort of exceptionalism in sports, even though he could, you know, have to deal with flights and slurs and other sorts of things like that from the fans, but that exceptionalism sort of allowed him to feel like an accepted member of those communities. Whenever he gets drafted into the Navy, he gets on a train in Newark and is going to Chicago where he's going to do his training. And there are black and white recruits on this train and he's looking at them and he recognizes some of them from athletes or people that he knew in high school and he's thinking oh we're all going to go to the same place we're all going to be together like a sports team like what he was used to and when he gets there the 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 arm or the navy separates the white uh, Mm. from the black recruits and it really is the first time that segregation just hits doby hard He's, this is the same country that he is going to fight for, and they are treating him as a second-class citizen right off the bat. And so really that's his sort of introduction to uh, uh, segregation. Now for Bob Feller, along with seeing significant action on board the Alabama, 
He also was concerned that he had lost a, a fair amount of potential income in his peak years. And so when he got back from the war, one of the first things he did was to really pick up the pace of barnstorming. And that got him back together with Satchel Paige once again on, on tours that really showcased black talent on the one hand. But at the same time, Feller would, would tell anybody who would listen that he wasn't sure that even the best of the Negro League players could compete at the major league level. Feller is a complicated figure. He was somebody who had no problem uh, competing against the best black athletes around and exposing himself to defeat. He often got defeated by Satchel Paige, including on the one that you're referring to, this 1946 barnstorming tour, where they play something like 35 games in 28 days. They were just flying across the country competing against each other. And really, because these tours were drawing tens of thousands of fans, they're exposing players like Paige and Buck O'Neill and other players like this to white fans, sports writers, and executives who otherwise would not have seen a Negro League baseball game. So it's really sort of showcasing the talent of these individuals. And they're playing against Feller. He's got, like, Stan Musial on his team. He's got all of these great players on there. And Page's team is beating them. And so really it helped the cause of integration uh, quite a lot. But any time Feller was asked, basically – uh, from the 30s until uh, baseball was integrated in 1947, major leagues were integrated in 1947. If any black players had what it took to make it in the majors, he would invariably say no. He felt like they uh, were quite uh, skilled in many ways, but they didn't sort of combine the overall package that would be, you would need to be a major league player. And in a way, he's kind of thinking of this from a very individual standpoint, as in, I made it to the major leagues as a 17-year-old. I pulled myself up out of the farm. I worked hard. I sort of perfected my craft, et cetera. They should be able to do that as well. And the fact that they haven't must mean that they're not good enough. He sort of blinded himself to the structural uh, barriers that prevented uh, black players from having a similar narrative as his own. Bill Veck would eventually bring all of them together, and I love the story of of Veck going on a scouting mission of sorts. He had some, he had his eye on some teams of the Pittsburgh Pirates among them, but it was spending time in Cleveland and and really spending time with the people, going into bars and taverns, talking to people on the street that convinced him that this was uh, really an opportunity waiting to happen. Bill Veck was a man of the people. He was a populist. He might have been born rich. He might have been born into a wealthy family, but he was somebody who wanted to sit in the bleachers and not in an owner's box. He was somebody who did not wear suits and ties and hats and things like this. He dressed like a common individual. And so whenever he goes to look for a major league club to buy in 1946, he's not going to the sort of high society places to figure out the sort of financials or, or anything like that. He's going into bars and talking to people and saying, what do you think of the Indians? What do you think about the baseball team? And what he sees is in Cleveland is that these are fans that are passionate about baseball, but they feel disconnected from the ownership team, which uh, the ownership group of the Indians, which has exerted very little effort into drawing them to the ballpark or frankly rebuilding the roster into a championship club. But he sees to himself, heck, if somebody reaches out to these fans, we could fill this massive stadium that Cleveland has on, on the lakefront. It is a stadium of 78,000 people. And it was very rarely ever got above, say, 20,000 in that stadium. And Vec is thinking to himself, 
boy, wouldn't it be great if we could try to fill that? <laughs> so yeah, he's he's he senses something in the air. Cleveland, Cleveland is the place for him. He signed Larry Doby in 1947, handled him carefully, didn't get a lot of action that year. He grudgingly kept on player-manager Lou Boudreau in that position. And then the 1948 <laughs> yeah. season began. And I, this this I did not, and I, I felt like I knew my baseball, but I didn't know this at all, that when Feller struggled, the fans, not just in Cleveland but everywhere, turned against him and blamed Bob Feller's I, I guess greed out there doing the barnstorming tours for his disappointing performance on the field. Bob Feller was somebody who always seemed to adapt to the time. So he was the sort of all-American boy in the Depression. He was the war hero during the war, signing up for the war whenever he didn't have to, setting a good example for other boys to follow. And then when he comes back from the war in 1946, he sort of becomes almost like the man in the white flannel suits. He becomes kind of an entrepreneur. He is the first professional athlete to incorporate himself. And as long as he's winning games and sort of his, his on-field performance is doing okay, fans were going with it. 1947 and 1948, he really starts to, to struggle for the first time ever in his athletic career. And now fans turn on him and say he's greedy. He's thinking only of his bottom line instead of the standings. He is too occupied. His mind is, is not where it needs to be. I think it's something that you see nowadays as well. Anytime an mm. athlete seems to be not performing up to his or her capabilities and you see a commercial with that athlete or something like that, or you see them in the tabloids, they'll say, oh, he's, he's, he's too preoccupied with, the, with X, Y, and Z. Um, Feller was, certainly fell prey to that to the, to the extent where Indians fans were booing him quite uh, vociferously. Satchel Page had waited for years and years to get his opportunity and, and wondered, as did uh, friends, uh, if he was just too old to ever get his chance at the major leagues. But finally, uh, he came to the rescue. Bill Veck reached out, and, and they had had communications earlier with, with Satchel asking him, when? When will I get the chance? And Veck sent word that now's the time, and uh, Page helped save that 1948 season for them. Yeah, it's, I mean, it really is quite something that, that Feller and Page, these two players who had been barnstorming against each other for 12 years at that point, by 1948, that Page, who is 42 years old and has been waiting forever to get into the majors, really gets his opportunity because Feller struggles so badly in that 1948 season. The Indians are neck and neck in the pennant race, and Beck realizes we need more pitching if we're going to be able to do it. Where can he find it? Well, he's been looking at Satchel Page for as long as Feller has been barnstorming with him. Like, he, Vec knows what Satchel Page is capable of. And whenever Page comes onto the Indians in July of 1948, he really sets off a nationwide sort of frenzy. Everywhere he goes, fans are just literally tearing out the turnstiles to get the chance to see him. He is setting attendance records every night that he starts. It, it's like a, a mythic figure has come into the league. Things that even if a lot of white fans had not seen him pitch, his name by that point, because of all the reports and, and sort of tales that had circulated about him, was known, were, was known by people. And now you finally got a chance to see him. The Indians end up tying the Red Sox for first place uh, in the 1948 regular season and had to go to a one-game playoff. And, of course, uh, here in New England, 70-some years later, people are still saying, why Denny Galehouse? 
Um, it is a curious choice. Denny Galehouse uh, was a pitcher for the Red Sox. He'd also pitched on the Browns and several other teams, including the Indians at one point. Um, he was a uh, he was a veteran starter who earlier in 1948 for the Red Sox had completely shut the Indians down during uh, a crucial game, I believe, in July. And so uh, the manager kind of rolled the dice and and thought maybe Gail House would be able to contain them. But uh, honestly, nobody could really contain Lou Boudreau that season. He uh, ended up hitting a pair of home runs in that game. He uh, he was just uh, he was a sensation. He won the MVP. Uh, Bill Beck almost got rid of him in the off season, and he really pulled them through. So it was the Indians. Uh, uh, perhaps fate to win that. <laughs> they would meet the Boston Braves in the World Series, and, and among the many ironies uh, is the fact that uh, Bob Feller was completely ineffective in the World Series. Satchel Page was a non-factor, finally getting in and mopped up duty along the way, and it would it would be Larry Doby who would struggle to find his place at various times as a major league ball player who proved to be the offensive hero, and then. Uh, an unlikely pitching star in knuckleballer Gene Bearden. Yeah, I think that really the Larry Doby's journey in 1947 and 1948 is one of the most extraordinary stories in Major League Baseball history. He, uh, unlike Jackie Robinson, who was the first black player in Major League Baseball in the 20th century, he Robinson had a year in the minor leagues to kind of acclimate to to get him to get his footing. Larry Doby journeyed literally overnight from the Negro Leagues to the Indians. He plays on the Negro Leagues one night, he's on the Indians the next day. He is so sort of shell-shocked by joining the majors so suddenly in 1947 that he would tell reporters that when he would come up to bat, his teeth were chattering. Mm. And so he has a very poor 1947 season. He barely gets any playing time. People do not think he's going to make the team in 1948. He claws his way under the roster in spring training. He has a kind of up and down first half of the season, and Lou Boudreaux is continually saying to himself, "Ah, maybe we should send him down. Maybe he needs more seasoning." But every time Boudreaux does that, Dobie has this sort of incredible home run, or he does this incredible play in the field. They eventually decide, "Ah, let's just keep him up here," and it really pays off. Dobie ends up hitting over 300 for that season, and then in the World Series, he leads all Indians batters with a 318 average and has a uh, home run in the fourth game that gives the Indians the victory. And that is really the crucial game of that series. And so really Larry Doby uh, goes from sort of a bench warmer to a superstar just like that. And it really sort of opens major league executives eyes to what can happen if you sign players from the Negro leagues, because surely the Indians would not have even come close to the world series if they hadn't had Larry Doby. There are a couple of incredibly poignant moments in the book uh, after the Indians win the world championship, uh, one being Bill Veck's comment uh, that he had never been so lonely. His his son had come to the game, and, and that was a, a disappointing experience. His wife was getting ready to divorce him. And then uh, uh, just a breathtaking moment uh, on the page with uh, Bob Feller over on one side of the clubhouse, head down, not even looking to make eye contact with his teammates because of his own disappointment with his performance, and Larry Doby crossing that room to go over and shake his hand. 
Barry Doby had had a very rough introduction to the Indians. Whenever he came onto the team, as I said, it was overnight. The other Indians players were not prepared for that, and some of them did not shake his hand whenever he comes into the clubhouse to join the Indians in 1947. He would always remember that moment throughout the rest of his life and this sort of sting of not being accepted into the major leagues. So in the major in the World Series, whenever Bob Feller loses two games, sort of the World Series was was really the last thing that Bob Feller hadn't done. He was such an, an incredible pitcher who had, had all of these accolades, but he'd never won a game in the World Series, and he finally makes it there, and he loses both of his games. And it's really Larry Doby who is the hero. And what I found so touching about that scene in the clubhouse after the Indians win the World Series is Bob Feller is in a corner, sort of by himself with his head down. And he was the the star of the Indians for so long, and now he's kind of an overlooked figure. People are not seeking him out. And it's really Dobie, the one who is so sensitive to exclusion and loneliness and being that person in the corner like that in an all-white clubhouse who sees Feller and goes over to him and sort of shakes his hand. He does the gesture that he wanted people to do for him. It's a really uh, touching scene. Absolutely. I want to talk, Luke, about a couple of people you talked to in your wonderful and extensive research on the book. And one of them uh, is Eddie Robinson, who was a member of that Mm -hmm. 1948 team. What was that experience like for you? Eddie Robinson right now is 100 years old. He he, he lives in Texas. Um, I spoke to him, I think, uh, two years ago. He invited me into his house. He's the only living member of the 1948 Indians, and he has a mind that... uh, he can remember specific at-bats whenever he was on the team. And so it was really valuable to get an insider perspective on what it was like when the Indians integrated. And he was somebody who was really struggling to stay on the field. He was a first baseman. It was his sort of uh, rookie year in 1947 whenever Larry Doby comes on. And Doby replaces Eddie Robinson in one game uh, at first base. And Eddie Robinson was so upset that he quit the team and said, well, if if this is how it's going to be, then I just don't want to be here. And he has to be talked back onto the team. And I think that that has has shadowed him throughout his entire life, the fact that something like that happens. And he was very sort of insistent when I talked to him that it did not have to do with racism. It had to do with the fact that... uh, that he was somebody who had been told that he was going to be the first baseman for the Indians, and now he is losing out playing time to somebody who had just been onto the team. But I think what it mainly shows is just how, for certain sort of white players that were struggling, the sort of integration to them could register as a loss of status or a loss of playing time or uh, or they could lose, they could be sent to the minors because of someone like Dobie being on the team and what a threat that mm-hmm. represented. Um, so to get that perspective from Eddie Robinson was was valuable. He also talked to the great Jim Mudcat Grant, uh, the first uh, black pitcher yeah. to win 20 games, who was a teammate of Larry Dobie's later in his career. And, of course, uh, Jim Mudcat Grant passed away just last week. He did. Mudcrat uh, did several conversations with me for this book. I think the most interesting thing that, that he was telling me was that he was uh, Larry Doby had gotten traded by the Indians in the mid-50s to the White Sox, but then he came back to the Indians in 1958, and that happened to be Jim Mudcat Grant's rookie season, and they roomed together in spring training that year. And Mudcat talked about how Larry Doby really took him under his wing and sort of showed 
him uh, the places that a black player could and couldn't go in Tucson, Arizona at that time, and really how to sort of navigate these these spaces that, that they were in. And Mudcat also talked about how Dobie, um, whenever the sort of slurs and uh, racial abuses that, that, that he was getting from the stands or even from the clubhouse would pile up, They'd be in their room together, and Dobie would just start throwing his shoes or screaming at the TV or something. And he said that Mudcat said that uh, it was always sort of you couldn't take it out face to face with these people, and so you would just be in the room, turn up the TV, and that's where you would sort of take out your your anger. So getting that perspective from him was was also really valuable. I had the opportunity uh, about twenty years ago now uh, to meet Larry Dobie when he helped induct his friend. Jerry Eisenberg into the National Sportscasters and Sportswriters Hall of Fame, and uh, he was uh, he was an incredible man uh, with with so much strength and grace. He was he was uh, he was a man of great dignity. He was a man who was, uh, I think, a very sensitive ind- individual, and um, he was very misunderstood at the time. And you could. I mean, there's a, there's one sort of section in the book where Larry Doby is going to spring training in 1948. He is in Tucson. He is the only black player on the Indians at that point. He is separated from his teammates because mm. he can't stay in the same hotel. He is getting abuse in the stadiums that they are uh, traveling to uh, to play exhibition games. And he feels really like he's disconnected. And at the same time, he is performing extraordinarily well to the point where people that thought he could never make that team after his poor season in 1947 were like, this must be one of the most exciting times in your life. And Dobie does this interview in 1948 where he's just talking about how lonely he is and how the loneliness is infecting him and sort of causing, uh, causing sort of just extreme discomfort and things like this. And it is one of the most honest things that I've ever seen an athlete say just he wore the, those emotions sort of on the sleeve and you can tell that the white sports writer interviewing him is not equipped really to sort of deal with with those emotions or even what is causing them um, but he is Dobie himself was just so honest and articulate in it. it it was a real it was a real education for me to research his life the book is called our team the epic story of four men in the World Series that changed baseball. It's a remarkable story of both baseball uh, and America at, a, at an important time in our history. Luke Eplin, thank you so much. I love the book. Thanks for making time to talk about it with us today. Thanks, Rich. It was great. Luke Eplin talking about his wonderful book, Our Team, here on Downtown, the podcast. A quick word from Cross Insurance, and then we're back with Donnie Most on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. Let's listen to a little music from our next guest, actor, director, singer, Don Most. You left me here 
Sanford Townsend band hit Smoke from a Distant Fire. That's uh, the latest single release from Don Most. You know, of course, as Ralph Mal for many seasons on Happy Days, but he's had a very busy career as an actor, director, and singer. We talked about a number of subjects with Don, including his performance in the recent film Lost Hearts that earned him a Best Supporting Actor Award at the recent International Christian Film Festival. Thanks for having me, Rich. Uh, good to be with you again. Well, this is uh, really exciting news. Uh, followed it on social media. You won the Best Supporting Actor Award at the recent International Christians Film Festival. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Lost Heart and your, uh, your role as Pastor Milo? Yeah, um, I, I really enjoyed doing this film. It was a great experience, a wonderful production company that's based in Michigan called Collective Development. It's my second film with them. And um, when they sent me the script, um, I, I got really excited because, uh, I, you know, the play is the thing, and it's all on the paper. And, and when I read it, I knew it was a special, a special script and a great role. So um, I was very, uh, you know, I jumped at wanting to do work with them again, and um, and yes, the the award that you alluded to just uh, this happened about oh, a few weeks ago down in Orlando at the festival there, and you know the movie, uh, you know, when I read it, it's not like I said, oh, this is a, a Christian film or even a faith-based film. It, you know, it was just a really good script, but it, it just happens to have some of the messages and themes that, you know, would resonate in that genre. And and they, they just really embraced the movie. Uh, you know, they nominated it at their festival for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Script, and, uh, and um, me for Best Supporting Actor. So um, uh, it was it was really a nice evening. I went to the awards. And it made for a more pleasant evening than I won, and I have to admit, <laughs> it, it, was, it was very nice. Uh, but but the movie is is really um, I think people really enjoy it because it's it, it has a, a very interesting uh, sort of melange of elements in it that uh, you know it's comedy it's drama but it's, and then there's mystery and there's all kinds of fun things going on in it and it, it all comes together uh, really nicely I, I felt and your character Milo is a pastor but is also as I understand drawn to conspiracy theories well. They, that came out in some press release. Um, more it was more of him being uh, his friend, his his uh, really good friend at the beginning of the movie. We see him involved. I won't say w- what what kind of uh, conspiracy thing he's into, but um, I, I got involved in it because of my friendship with him, and 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 maybe I believe. I guess I could say it. You know, that's one aspect of film that deals with uh, UFOs. So. Um, Maybe my character isn't doesn't disbelieve, you know, but he's not like a fervent uh, believer. But his friend was, so that's how he got involved. But but he supports him in that regard. So, um, but my character is interesting in that regard. He's not your typical, you know, typical small town pastor. He's got his own little eccentricities about him, I'd say. 
I read an interview where you said that uh, you used meditation to help get yourself in the proper uh, frame of mind uh, to play the yeah. character. Is that something you do uh, even when you're not working? Um, you know, I, I, I tried it here over the years here and there, you know, dabbled in it a little bit, but I never could be very disciplined about it. It was just hard for me. Um, but for the, for the film, I decided I wanted to, because to get into the head and the, and the space or the, the sort of the, the way, the speed of my, the way my mind works and I needed to slow it way down. I felt and, and to, to, to capture the pastors uh, after reading it and, and doing some research, I just felt this was a pathway for me to get to this guy. You know, I needed a little spiritual help, so to speak. <laughs> and I was doing it through a meditation and it, it helped me get to a, a different place to, to approach the character. Uh, happy days when you first came to everybody's attention was certainly something that the family gathered around to watch. Is it fulfilling to make a film that's also a, something that families can watch together? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You know, whenever I travel around, do some personal appearances or in shows, uh, a lot of people say, you know, they, they loved the show so much because it was one they could watch with the whole family and they miss shows like that. And, and, you know, I realized how important that was uh, probably more so now than I did when I was younger. So, um, so this film doing a film that has that same demographic, if you will, and, you know, that can appeal to the whole family that watched together is very nice. I feel really good about that. Uh, the film is Lost Heart, and it's streaming on Amazon Prime right now. We, we talked with you last time about some of your directing, but I, I don't think I'd made the connection last time that uh, in one of the films you've directed, uh, you worked with a good friend of our show, Curtis Armstrong. Oh, yes. Yeah, Curtis was, was great. Um, yeah, uh, I'd, I'd never met Curtis. You know, our paths would never cross. And then when I was uh, working on, uh, on, you know, getting the right cast for the film, um, I, I guess I can't remember how his name came up. But then immediately I was like, oh, Curtis would be great for this role. You know, I would love to work with him. And um, I was very happy when he, he accepted and... Um, he was, a, he was a pleasure to work with, just, just a real pro and a great guy. Do you think you direct differently because of your experience as an actor? Do you see things that uh, maybe other directors might not see? You have that advantage of uh, knowing what the actors are thinking and feeling? Yeah, I think it's definitely a, an advantage for a director who, who comes from the acting world in terms of getting, getting great performances you know, and getting the best out of your cast. Um, you know, different directors have different strengths. Um, some maybe come from the visual side, like maybe they were the director of photography before that and, or an editor. And, and they'll have their strengths, but they, they might, they're not going to have that, that sort of shortcut language uh, to, with the actors that another actor will and, and that sort of understanding of and the, their, the unique challenges that they have in, in getting their best performance. So, uh, yeah, I think that's why, you know, some, some actors have made such great directors. Um, you know, uh, Kevin Costner comes to mind right now, you know, and there's certainly many others. Um, it, it, it can be a real advantage. We're talking with Don Most here on Downtown. Well, uh, 
one of your great loves is singing as well. And, and like so much uh, during the time of COVID over the last year, it's been difficult to, to get out and perform. So you've got to be very excited uh, to have June 17th on the schedule when you'll be closing up a performance uh, live at the Muck uh, at Fullerton. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a jazz festival that, that's um, out in Fullerton, which is... Um, you know, so it's a little bit outside Los Angeles, like 30, 45 minutes away. And um, they, they've they been having this festival going on for the last, uh, you know, I think month. And um, and I'll be doing the closing night on the 17th, as you mentioned. I'll be doing it with a great big band, which I, I love performing with, with the big band sound. And, you know, like 17 musicians behind it. It's, it's, it's uh, high. And... Um, and, and as you alluded to, I mean, I haven't been able to do it now. It's been a, well over a year. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. But I'm also a little worried that I might be a little rusty. <laughs> it's been so long, so I have to get the chops back up to snuff. Um, I'm starting to work on it this week as we speak. Hey, have you got a favorite uh, composer whose songs you, you really love to sing? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know... I don't, not really a favorite. I mean, I, I love, I mean, I love Gershwin, but yeah, certainly, certainly also love uh, Cole Porter and, and uh, I mean, so and Rogers, Rogers and Hart. There's so many, you know. There's those that era is why I love it so much. The the writing was amazing, um, the the wit, the sophistication, and and the melodies and all of that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean Gershwin is is up there, you know, probably at the top of the list. But um, but oh, I also love Johnny Mercer and Harold mm-hmm. Arlen. So those are a few of my favorites. I, I love that music and and that time period of music. Do you ever do you ever wish you could just uh, go back and then be in some some little club uh, back in the late nineteen forties and or even in a smoky bar and hear somebody singing yeah. those songs back in the time? Oh, oh yeah. And that's why I, I still go to those, you know, there are supper clubs, jazz clubs around. And um, sometimes you find one that sort of feels like it could be back in that time. You know, every once in a while, you, there is one you find like that. So, um, yeah, I, I missed that. Uh, I went to a lot of those growing up in New York. Um, and But there are a few out here. But, but the last year, of course, I haven't been to any. <laughs> so I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. To, um, to to go as a customer and, of course, to perform. Don, the, the Happy Days cast, you guys have stayed a very tight through all these years, and, and you've also, you've all had success. You've all continued to work in the business uh, for several decades now. What, what was it about that group, and, uh, and how much of that was the influence of, of Gary Marshall in, in helping a group of young actors um, have the right habits that would lead to a, a successful future? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think having some r- real mentors was was a big was a big factor. Gary Marshall, of course, as you mentioned, being one of them. Gary was was great and um, and you know looked after us and and did set you know some good examples for us standards. And as did our director Jerry Paris, who was amazing and and he, you know, he he definitely kind of. Was he was like an uncle for me, and and but he was a mentor to the whole cast, I think. And and you know, when you think about it, we we had Ron Howard, who was had been a star since he was really young, and 
So he was a great sort of example for us because here he is, you know, very well known actor and and he's so sort of grounded and down to earth and and a great role model. So so you know we we it comes from above and and if you know if we even see him acting all full of himself and highfalutin, you know, then why should we? You know, I mean, it was like if if he's this sort of humble, you know, I mean, it was a good it was a good example for us to learn from. I'm so glad you mentioned Jerry Paris. I was watching uh, a cable channel a couple of weeks ago, and Marty came on, and I I oh, love right. that movie, and and Jerry was so good in that, and and. Yes. You know, he had such a remarkable career as a very successful actor, of course, on the Dick Van Dyke show. But then uh, a career that not many actors were able to do what he did as an actor and then go on and, and have an even greater level of success as a director. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry, he was an amazing guy. Um, I, I miss him very much. Um, I owe a lot to Jerry. And uh, yeah, he. He did a lot of wonderful things as an actor, and then when uh, when he got the Dick Van Dyke show, he was smart. He, I think he, you know, he made it a big thing that he wanted to direct. And um, in the second year, they let him take over and direct, and he won the Emmy for best comedy directing his very first, you know, year directing, and um, and did that show for you know many years after, and then a lot of other. Um, he did a bunch of films and a lot of other television. And then, of course, Happy Days. He directed like 90% of the episodes, you know, something like probably 200 episodes. And, um, you know, we owe as much. Gary, of course, was a, a huge force, but Jerry just as much, if not more, because we were with Jerry like every day, you know, working with him. You've had so many accomplishments in your career, but but I don't know that any of them measure up to this in, in the business you're in, but uh, is it 39 years that you've been married now? Yes, 39 years, exactly. Uh, we had our anniversary a few months ago in March. So, yeah, that's it's pretty amazing. I'm very lucky. Well, congratulations on that, and, and congratulations on the uh, well-deserved acclaim for Lost Heart. Again, uh, the film from Don Most that earned him the Best Supporting Actor Award at the ICFF. It's uh, streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Don, it's uh, so good to talk with you again. We appreciate you carving out a little time for us, and uh, we wish you continued good health and success, and uh, hope you knock him dead on the 17th in Fullerton. Oh, thank you, Rich. Thanks so much. That was very kind, and um, I appreciate all, all of your comments, and and um, hope to speak to you again when we have something else going on. That okay. sounds great. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Don. Be well. All right. Thank you. You too. That's Don Most on Downtown, the podcast, talking uh, little happy days, acting, music, and much more. Our thanks to Don. Thanks to Luke Eplin as well for uh, taking us back in time to the 1948 Cleveland Indians carry a team I know your dad was a big fan of. Yeah, my dad was a huge fan of those 1940s, late 40s uh, Indians teams. So uh, it was a very, uh, very interesting to sort of pull back the curtain on those teams a little bit. Yeah, and uh, boy, what they were able to do. The book is great. You ought to get a hold of it. It's hard to imagine it today, but uh, that that old stadium, the mistake on the lake, as they call it. I mean, they were banging out 78,000 fans a game. 
during that 1948 Man. season, drawing record crowds there and uh, and a memorable year, and yet a year that uh, neither the Indians nor most of the principals were ever able to match again. But a wonderful book from Luke Eplin. Our thanks to him, thanks to Don Most, and thanks to you for joining us this week here on Downtown, the podcast.